Welcome to the 58th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Chris Morgan Jones, author of the new thriller novel, The Silent Oligarch. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Chris Morgan Jones, author of the new thriller novel, The Silent Oligarch, available in bookstores and as an ebook now. Alan First, the best-selling writer, had this to say about The Silent Oligarch. The Silent Oligarch is beautifully written, clean, and terse, but you won't notice because you'll read just as fast as you can. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Well, as we begin, I wanted to see if you could read the first three paragraphs of your book. Uh, let me just set the scene very briefly. Uh, this is the prologue to the book, um, sure. and it takes place 10 years before the book. Uh, and uh, nothing exciting happens in these first three paragraphs, but you don't have to read very much further to come to the exciting bit. So with that preface, uh, high in the air, Webster watches the unbroken desert flow past, a deep copper red in the dawn, the sand ridged like waves rolling down towards the south. Next to him, Inyessa lies curled up, and the drunken songs of the Russian engineers across the aisle. Below, the sand gives way to grass in the vast Kazakh plain, and in the distance, if he presses his face to the window, he can see the Alpine mountains rising and stretching east into China. He glances across at Inyessa, She's small enough to be comfortable in her rigid seat, her knees pulled up against her chest like a child. It's rare for her to be still, rare for her to be silent. She opens her eyes for a moment, moves a lock of black sleep. Webster tries to rearrange his aching legs against the seat in front. Five hours overnight from Moscow. He wouldn't suffer this for anyone else. Great. Well, if the listeners haven't heard about the silent oligarch yet, can you describe your new novel? Yeah, of course. Um, it's about a man forced to realize um, by events that halfway through his life and possibly too late, he's sold his identity and maybe his soul to the Russian oligarch he's been working for for the last 20 years. There's uh, an English-Dutch lawyer who um, went to Moscow in his... 20s, uh, in the early 1990s, when the Russian economy was just opening up, to seek his fortune. Um, and it was his bad luck to find it there in the form of a client, whose name is Konstantin Malin, who, when they meet, is just a lowly bureaucrat in the energy ministry, but when the book opens, has become enormously powerful and very, very wealthy, stealing money from the Russian state. And it's been our main character's job to hide that money on behalf of this uh, increasingly powerful client. Into their lives comes a London-based investigator who's been charged with um, destroying Malin by destroying his reputation and removing him from office in some way. And uh, the investigator realizes that the way to do this is through the economic front man that Malin has been using all this time. And the story is about the relationship between the investigator and his target. Um, and how it develops and how it becomes ever more perilous um, and ever more difficult for them to get out of individually as well. 
Great. Well, unlike some writers who have to do a ton of research before writing a thriller novel, I understand that you spent many years working for one of the largest business intelligence agencies. Did you still have to do a lot of research or did your background and knowledge just come spilling out when you wrote The Silent Oligarch? This one um, required very little direct research. I mean, there were some, some, some small moments along the way where I had to make sure that my facts were straight. But yeah, I worked for a company called Kroll for 11 years, and Kroll is the world's largest business intelligence company. And that meant that you know my job every week, pretty much, clients come to me asking me to find things out, and in a way, asking me to um, complete stories that they only have the beginning of, if you see what I mean. So they come and they mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm about to do business with this or they come and say, you know, this, this, this character's stolen all my money and I need to know where it's gone. Uh, it would be my job to fill in, the, fill in the blanks. And so I was lucky enough to leave with uh, a loss of stories under my belt. Having said that, I just more or less finished writing the second novel and that required more research. But again, the, the, the basic story was from something that once happened to me. Great. Well, well, given your knowledge of Russia, which is, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, a definite backdrop and setting of, of the novel, what, what do you think about the recent developments over the past several weeks in the country? Do you, do you think Putin will maintain his grip on power? And do you think there's a, a police crackdown um, in the near future coming? I have a nasty feeling of will, I'm afraid. Um, I think it's very exciting what is happening in Russia at the moment because, uh, in a way, um, it's a popular revolution um, in, in a way that the, the, um, in the in a way that the last revolution there in the early 1990s was not. And, and um, the populace of Russia is, is finding its political voice, I think, for the, for the first time in a very, very long time, for you know, centuries, possibly longer. Um, and despite that, um, I think it would be very surprising if Putin didn't win the presidential election in a couple of months' time, because the majority of Russian voters um, still take their information from television. Um, and the state broadcasting apparatus is so um, utterly controlled by the state. Well, sorry, the broad, all broadcasting in Russia is so controlled by the state that it's very difficult to get alternative political voices heard. That's one problem. The other problem is that the opposition in Russia is nothing like mature enough really to take on um, somebody as politically adept as Putin just yet. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him back in power in March. And then, well, I, I think the interesting thing then will be how he seeks to contain growing unrest um, and he will he'll do one or two things he'll try and accommodate it in some way or he'll crack down on it um, which is <laughs> something you suggest in your question um, and whether he <laughs> does the form whether he does the former or the latter I think is yeah I'm hoping it's the former but I fear it's the latter because I think his instincts are quite old-fashioned um, and his instincts were of course formed um, in uh, formed while working for um, intelligence agencies in Russia um, and you know they tend not to be very politically forward-looking so um, <laughs> it's, it's exciting but I, I, I think that to get one's hopes up at the moment would be foolish I mean what I think the greatest source for hope in fact is the um, increasing power of the internet in that country um, 
there are more Russian, I can't remember what the statistic is precisely, but Russian uptake of, um, of internet access is extraordinary. It's, it's, it's great. It has greater penetration than many Western European countries. Um, and uh, as that happens, it becomes increasingly difficult, despite the uh, monopoly of um, state media, um, to uh, hide all the information all the time. And so it's becoming leakier and leakier. And I suspect that in 10 years, Russia will look a very different place, I hope, in a good way. Interesting. Well, have you always been interested in writing fiction? When, when you were working at Kroll, as you talked about earlier, were you always in the back of your mind knowing that you were planning to write a novel? Or, or what prompted you to sit down and write The Silent Oligarch? Well, I, I, um, I think I, ha- I always had it in the back of my mind as a, as a potential vanity project. Um, and I think I had made a subconscious um, agreement with myself that it would be something that I wanted to do but could probably never get around to doing. Um, and you know, like, like my golf goal would be one of the great unexplored talents of my life. You know, I, don't, I don't play golf, but I don't play golf. I have this feeling I'd be brilliant at it if I just, just could be bothered. Um, but no, what happened was I got the opportunity, I got time, um, and I, I left Kroll to set up a business which um, which uh, started life a week after Lehman Brothers collapsed, um, which was not a very good time to start a new business. And after a year of trying to raise funds and trying to get it going, it became clear that it wasn't going to happen. And I started looking for work again. And while I was doing that, I decided to write. And so um, it quickly became clear to me as I wrote the first chapter that I was enjoying it an awful lot more than looking for work, certainly, <laughs> and possibly more than work itself. Um, and then I, I was lucky enough. My wife works in publishing, and okay. has spent has spent a career, you know, assessing whether the books are any good or not. So I handed her five chapters a little later on, uh, with my heart in my throat, um, and said, "Could you tell me whether I should carry on with this, please?" And she liked them. It was a very good sign. So, um, but to answer your question directly, it, um, not really, no. Not really. I mean, I wish I could say that it's been my lifelong ambition. I think it's something that I'd always thought I would love to do, but didn't right. have the courage. Didn't have the courage to entertain as a serious prospect. Right. And so, so what was the process like for you in in writing that that first novel? Did you um, did you kind of write a, a proper outline or summary, or did you just write more organically and kind of see where the story took you? What What was that like? I I, I had a very strong idea to begin with, of um, who the two central characters would be. Um, and I didn't really know where the story was going to go. And so um, the first thing I did was sketch out these two characters um, and just wrote a little file on each about who they were and how they ticked. And then I wrote an outline of the plot, um, which, um, because... Um, I mean, all plots are complicated, I'm coming to realize. Uh, and this one has some special challenges because it has uh, the book's written from some dual perspective, perspective switches between the two characters from chapter to chapter. And so it's a complicated book, certainly for the first time, I needed to write it all down. Then I wrote it and various things changed, of course. Um, so it's, right. it's a, it's a, I think it's an, an analogy that's been used a lot, but it is a useful one. Is that the, the, the plot I mapped out was just that, it was a map. And then it was up to me whether I deviated from it or discovered some shortcuts as well, which also happened. Right. 
And and so, given your experience of, of writing the novel, is there any is there anything that you took took away from that that you would offer as advice or tips to to someone else who's sitting down to write their first novel? Yeah, lots of things. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to choose the top two or three. Um, one thing, um, these may sound like little things, but actually some of them are pieces of advice that were passed to me that I find extremely useful. Um, once somebody, this is actually probably the most useful thing, don't trust what you consider to be your best work. Um, and I, that has proved to be very true. Um, and the subset of that piece of advice is don't trust the work that comes easiest to you. If you're, if you're flying along and writing at a great rate and it's all coming very readily, um, it's quite often the case that the next morning you look at it and you think, oh dear, what was that? <laughs> um, conversely, you can spend you know, a whole day squeezing out a couple of hundred words and really useful, and those might be the best thing you actually do. Um, so that is one, one unexpected thing. Um, oh, here's another one. Um, I think there's a piece of wisdom that says that you should read as much as you can within the same, not necessarily genre, but within the same area in which you intend to write. And that I would disagree with strongly, um, because I think if, um, I had written, uh, sorry, if I'd only read thrillers, I'd just turn out a, a, a copycat thriller. And while this is influenced by all sorts of people, and it's not meant to be you know, tremendously original work, um, I hope it's interesting in some ways, because actually I don't read that many thrillers. Um, but I do read lots of other sorts of books, and I think that's extremely important for a writer, um, is to get as much... Uh, as much breadth of influence as you possibly can. And then one lovely sure. tip from a fellow writer, which was um, when you finish each evening, leave yourself something easy to do the next day. So instead of you know putting off the difficult thing that you're going to have to start cold the, the, you know, the, 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 the next morning when you pick up the pen again, start it the following night, the previous night, and do a little and get some of that momentum going, which you can then pick up the next right. day um, and that was very helpful that's that's great and uh, i'm i'm curious you said that you that you read pretty widely what what are some of the books that you've read lately that that kind of stuck with you that you enjoyed or that you would recommend even if it's nonfiction? i'm just curious um let's see i recently read george v higgins's first two books um the friends of eddie coyle and um Kogan's, Kogan's Run, Kogan's, hmm, I forget the second word. Right, um, right. And if, any, if anybody hasn't read any George V. Higgins, they're heavily, heavily dialogue-based crime novels. Um, but they are written um, so beautifully and, and with such verve and humor, full of monologues, full of long, long monologues. I would imagine Quentin Tarantino was a big fan of George V. Higgins. <laughs> um, because uh, the, the, the monologues are very, very rich and um, extremely funny, and all character development is done through dialogue. And the only uh, writing in there which isn't dialogue is just action. You know, he, the character went from this place to that place, and, and actually most of the action is in reported speech as well. So those, they're, um, those are enormous fun. There's another one called Rat on Fire, which is excellent. Um, it's all about an insurance scam. Um, so that, and I'm reading Dombey and Son. Again, at the moment, it's Dickens' 200th um, 
anniversary this year and uh, Britain at least is going crazy for that there are lots of biographies and TV programs and so on and so I thought um, I should dip back in and that was wonderful um, that's great so you said that you'd written a you said you'd written a second novel mm. yeah I'm just polishing up at the moment I had a session on Monday with my agent my editor and my wife not all together <laughs> separate meetings Several meetings, and they told me what they thought was wrong with the draft that I'd given them, um, and uh, I shall make some changes accordingly. But yeah, getting there, getting that, and it's still in an early stage, but it does, and it's a complete text, and I, I just need to polish it up so it's good enough. Great. Well, where can people find you online? Uh, ChrisMorganJones.com, um, which, is, which is my website, which I look after, um, and otherwise at Penguin who are my US publishers or at Macmillan who are my UK publishers um, right. but from my website you can get to all those places Okay, well again we've been speaking with Chris Morgan Jones author of the new thriller The Silent Oligarch published by Penguin Press and available in bookstores now Chris, thanks for doing the podcast My great pleasure, thank you Hi, this is author Peter O'Rulian, uh, author of The Unremembered, and you're listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.